Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Let me first start off uh, by joining Tessa and congratulating our graduates. Of all the years to graduate, I know the past few years have been very difficult, so we want to say we're so proud of you. We're so excited for uh, the next season of your life. And for those of you guys that don't know me, uh, my name is Gabe Kinsley. I am one of the youth pastors here at Cornerstone, and today we are continuing in our parable series. And the parable and the passage that we're going to be studying today reminds me of my relationship with my wife and actually how we came to be. And to better explain why, I have to take you back to the very beginning. I will never forget the day that I first met Shelby. Um, I was attending Azusa Pacific University. I was a freshman in college, um, horrible at math, was in algebra class, met a girl named Michelle, not Shelby, Michelle, she was really good at math, and she offered to help uh, me study for an upcoming test. And so I go to Michelle's dorm room, and I knock on the door. And to my surprise, Michelle doesn't open the door, but this beautiful angel, okay, this beautiful girl who I'd never seen, never met, she opens the door. And I literally, I'm, I'm taken back um, by how beautiful this girl is, and I'm barely able to get out the words, is Michelle here, to which... This girl, Shelby, says no and slams the door in my face. And there's debate between Shelby and I that she really slammed the door. She says she just shut the door, but it was heavy, so it sounded like it slammed. That's, he, that's neither here nor there. It's not really that important. But the point is, within a matter of seconds, I went from like complete awe with this girl to all of a sudden a commitment to avoid her at all costs, right? She seemed like, you know, the, the pretty uh, cheerleader type, you're wasting my time, shut the door on my face. And I was like, I am absolutely gonna avoid this girl at all costs. What I didn't understand that day was that Shelby was actually being a good roommate. She thought I was one of these bad guys that were being mean to her roommate, Michelle. And so when she saw me, she was like, no, she's, she's not here and gently shut the door on my face, right? To make a long story short, Shelby comes to find out that I'm not the evil guy that she thought that I was. There's a little stalking that goes down. If you want to know more about that, you can ask Shelby to tell you that story. Um, and the next thing I know, we're hanging out. And then after that, we're going on dates. And then I come to find out that Shelby is one of the most amazing human beings on the face of the planet. She, the way that she loves people, the way that she loves her God. And we go from both of us disliking each other to all of a sudden convinced that we're supposed to get married, that we're supposed to spend the rest of our lives together. And that's what we've done for over the past 20 years. And this is quite literally the parable that we're going to look at today. You see, I think there's some of you guys, no matter where you are at home or you know, in an office, wherever you're watching this at, I think there's some of you guys that are still getting to know who Jesus is. You're still getting to know what he offers, what he's all about. And I would argue that some of us have a, a, a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Maybe because of what something somebody else did on his behalf, kind of like slamming the door in our face. Maybe because of something that he said or did. Like what Gene talked about last week where he literally kills a fig tree. And you're like, what? Jesus, why would you do that? Who are you? And so today, 
through this extremely, very fascinating parable, Jesus is going to say to the world, this is who I am. This is what I am all about. This is why I've come into the world, and this is why you should care. This is why you should want a relationship with me. Jesus shares this parable in hopes that we might get to know, truly know who he is. And what's Jesus's end goal? What's, what's the purpose in telling this, this story? It's ultimately that we would trust his love and trust him with our life and say, I do. You know, all throughout the Bible, all throughout the gospels, Jesus likens our relationship to him as a covenant of marriage. That we are literally the bride of Yeshua Messiah, right? And he's the bridegroom. Even Paul says in Ephesians that a man will leave his father and mother and be united. And then he says, but actually what I'm, at, what I'm really talking about is, is Christ in the church, right? Paul likens the gravity of our commitment to Jesus as a covenant of marriage, and so if you're listening today thinking like, whoa, hold on, that is, that is a huge commitment, right? I didn't really know, I don't really know who Jesus is. I'm not sure if I'm in a place where I would be willing to give him my life. I want you to know that is totally normal. Makes complete sense. Can you imagine if the day that Shelby slammed the door on my face, all of a sudden a pastor showed up out of nowhere, knocked on the door and said, hey, Shelby, come out here. Gabe, Shelby, will you, will you guys turn in towards each other? Gabe, grab Shelby's hands. Dearly beloved, we gather here today um, to unite these two in holy matrimony. Shelby would have run back into her dorm room, slammed the door. I would have ran for the hills. Why? Why? Because of the gravity of that commitment and, and because of the, the, the reality that we didn't know each other. My prayer is that as we go through this parable today, if you're a person that's not sure about this guy that we call Jesus, that, that, that you would maybe be willing to have a soft heart, be willing to hear what he has to say. And I also want you to know that, again, don't feel bad. It is a process of getting to know him, just like any other relationship. And for those of us listening that love Jesus and gave your life to him a long time ago, this parable is kind of like us going through old wedding pictures or videos, remembering why we chose him to begin with, and then realizing that after 20 years of marriage, there's still so much more to learn. There's still so many more ways in which I can love Jesus better. And as we'll see, we'll never, we'll never stop learning about Jesus's love for us. We'll never stop working the gospel into different parts of our hearts and different crevices of our lives. You see, the power of the gospel never ends. It only gets better and richer. It only, as we'll see, grows deeper. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter four, where again, Jesus introduces himself to the world by telling this parable of the sower. So let's read it together. It says this, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. And the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they were withered because they had no root. 
Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still other seed sown among thorns hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So backstory really quickly, at this point in Jesus's ministry, people are getting to know who he is, right? They're starting to hear about him, starting to hear about demons being cast out, right? People being healed. And people from all over have come to see this rabbi named Jesus for different reasons. Some people don't like him, like the Pharisees. They're trying to catch him, saying something he shouldn't say. Some people are there because they're just curious. They've heard about him. They want to see him face to face. They want to know more about these things that he's teaching. Some people are there because they want healing. But the point is so many people have gathered to see Jesus that he's beginning to get pushed back into the water. And so he jumps in a boat and begins to teach. As an introduction, this is who I am. You guys are all here to see me. Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you why I've come into the world. And he does it through a parable about farming. And so why does Jesus use farming as a means to describe who he is? Well, many theologians like N.T. Wright believe that whenever Jesus is talking about a field or a garden, he's always making reference to the Garden of Eden. He's making reference to when God and man's relationship started. In the beginning, when man walked with God in perfection, without shame, without guilt, without sickness, without death, without starvation, homelessness. But then what happens? Man falls prey to the belief that there's something else in this world that offers life. Something else that offers fulfillment other than the relationship with God. And, and we taste the fruit of lust and pride. We try selfishness, which always leads to broken relationships and in turn leads to things like envy and unforgiveness and revenge. And almost in an instant, in just the first few chapters of Genesis, we realize our world is messed up. It's messed up. Brothers are killing brothers. Where there once was a beautiful garden, there's now weeds and a barren and dry land. Where pesky uh, seed-stealing birds are trying their best to stop growth and life from springing forth. But also, this is what's really cool. In an instant, God says, wait, wait, hold on. There is a seed. There's a seed. And it will be the seed of a woman. 
that will one day crush the head of the serpent and one day make everything that has gone wrong with this world right again. He will restore relationships. He will bring back to life that which was dead. And we will once again walk without guilt and shame with our God. We have to get this. Jesus is telling all of us in this parable what he has come to do, what is going to happen. And in the boat, in front of this crowd, he tells this parable. He's making an announcement to the world that God has begun a process of restoring everything, making everything right. And not just this world, he's, he's begun a process of restoring us, every single one of us. And he likens that process to the planting of a seed. And so first and foremost, what is the seed? The seed is Jesus. It is the gospel, right? It is, it is the word. It is the good news that God spoke of all the way back in the garden in the beginning that God himself has always had a plan to rescue us, to come after us. That God has always throughout humanity loved humanity and thought of us worth suffering for. That he's like a good father that holds his child and says, there's nothing you can do to earn my love. You just have it. There's nothing you can do to lose my love. You just have it. That God has always had a plan to come after us and to show us the depth of his love and to make a way for all of us to be together with him again. The seed is Jesus and his love. That's what the seed is. The farmer represents those that hold the seed in our hands and we understand its value. We understand its worth. Those of us that have chosen Jesus and who love him. But if you notice, it's really interesting because it's like the farmer isn't being very wise with this seed. He's scattering it everywhere on the road, on rocks, in places that you wouldn't think a farmer would be trying to sow seed. It's almost as if he's being wasteful. Why? There's a guy named Christian who goes to Cornerstone. He's a part of this Cornerstone family. He's a, a kid that I've known since he was literally born because he's the son of my youth pastor when I was in high school. But Christian lives here in Boulder and he works for a startup company that is doing incredible things, right? They are growing plants vertically using uh, hydroponics and robots to perfectly control the planting of seed, the amount of water, the exact amount of fertilizer that every single plant needs. Ultimately, so there's little to no waste. And their hope is to get high quality, healthy food to people all over the globe who couldn't normally afford it or have access to it. It's an incredible, amazing startup. But you'll notice this company is doing the exact opposite, the literal exact opposite of what this farmer is doing in this parable. Again, it seems like he's wasting the seed. Why? It's because the farmer, you have to get this, the farmer knows it is not his job to judge the soil. He knows that the heart of the, the landowner is to desperately go after every single person. His, his heart is that all would come to know him. How many of you guys have heard the song Amazing Grace? I would probably guess everyone, every single one of us. And it was written by a man named John Newton. And John Newton was born in the 1700s. And he lost his mom at a very young age. And so he was raised by his dad, who was a rough and tough sailor which meant that by the time John was uh, a teenager, he was a drunken sailor who, as legend has it, had the ability to cuss for two hours straight without repeating curse words. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, a, that's a gift, that's a talent. 
And because John was a mean and drunk loudmouth, he, he ticked off a ton of people, which led to his abandonment off the, the coast of South Africa because the sailors, again, got so sick of John. They just left him there, sailed away, which led to him being kidnapped and enslaved. But as soon as his captors found out what kind of person he was, they actually made him lower than the slaves, forcing John to eat the crumbs that fell from the slaves' table. One day, he was able to get off of their boat. He was able to escape. He shot off a signal fire and was rescued by another boat. And that boat took him back to Africa where John Newton took all of his drunken, bitter rage out on Africans and became a slave trader himself. He would separate kids from their moms and dads, husbands from their wives, brothers and sisters. He would separate families. John Newton, at his lowest point, became one of the most dark and evil individuals you could possibly think of. And so on May 10th, 1748, John Newton is on his slave ship and God sends a storm. And the, the boat begins to take on water and it begins to sink. And John Newton does one thing. He cries out three words, God help me. And it's a long story, but John doesn't die that day. He gets really sick. He ends up in London where a few godly men find John and nurse him back to health. All the while teaching John about God. The same God that he had cried out to help for and, and told him that this God, his name is Jesus. And they began to teach him about God's grace and how it was offered even to the John Newtons of the world that had done the most horrible, wretched things. And John trusts Jesus with his life. And this is where I have to stop for a second and tell you, when you trust Jesus with your life, it transforms everything about you. It changes the deepest, darkest places of your heart. Trusting Jesus tangibly changes your life. Just look at John Newton. He went from a slave trading, bitter, angry, drunk to a Christian pastor that today is known for a few things. Number one, his influence on William Wilberforce, who went on through parliament to end the slave trade in all of England, which essentially affected what was happening here in America. And secondly, John Newton is known for writing one of the most popular songs of all time, Amazing Grace. How sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. He's writing a song about the seed, about Jesus's love and how it transformed his life. Lesson one from the farmer, it is, it's not our job to judge who is deserving of Jesus, no matter how messy they are, no matter how jacked up the person is, no matter how hard of a heart a person might have, we extravagantly spread Jesus and his love to all, which leads us to the soil. I mean, the question I think we all ask when we read this parable, at least I do, is what does it mean to be good soil? And I think the answer, if we look closely at the first three soils, is that they all have a depth problem. The roots can't grow deeply, but the good soil welcomes the seed and the roots plant deeply in their hearts. How? I am convinced that the key to the kingdom of heaven is understanding simply and yet profoundly that we need Jesus. We need him. That's the only difference 
in the soils. The good soil says, I need Jesus. The good soil says, look, I don't know everything that there is that there possibly could be about you, Jesus, but I know enough to say, amen, I do. And you see it in Jesus' response to those that come and sit at his feet who ask for the answer to this parable, right? Jesus has this huge crowd of people there, like we talked about for all different reasons. And he tells this story of the four soils and the farmer and the seed, and then he just leaves. He takes off. I think he's, he has this whole group of people there. He's like, do you really want to know me? I'm going to tell you a parable. Let's see if you come and ask me what it means. And so now he's away from the crowds and the disciples gather and, and some others, right? They gather around Jesus. And because they're confused about the meaning of the four soils, and Mark points out that Jesus says something so fascinating to me. Verse 11, he says this, the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus says to them, don't you understand the parable? Like, wait, what? This is so confusing. I thought you just said that the secret of of the kingdom of God had been given to them. And yet they don't understand this parable. They clearly don't get it, which is why they've come to ask you about it. And so if the secret of the kingdom of heaven is not simply understanding the parable, then what is it? You see the difference again between the two groups, those that received the secret of the kingdom of heaven and those that haven't wasn't understanding. It was need. It was disciples saying, I do. That is precisely what's happening here. The disciples are gathered around Jesus, not because they understand everything. No, they are just as confused as everyone else was. They are there because they want him. They understand just enough to know that they need Jesus. Later on, Jesus is going to say another really fascinating thing in front of a a big crowd of people, I would argue, to get the same result. He's going to say, one day you're going to eat my body, you're going to drink my blood, obviously referring to what we call now the sacrament of communion. And he says this on purpose because everyone leaves except for the people that actually want them. And he looks up at the disciples and he says, why haven't you left? What are you still doing here? And they make a vow statement. They make a need statement. They say, where else would we go? To whom else, Jesus, would we go? When you have the words of life, we're in. We need you. You see, the first soil for a handful of reasons says, I don't don't need Jesus. Look it. Jesus, if I'm honest, is a joke, dying for my sins. I didn't ask for that. All I need is to live a moral life. I know what Christians are like, just a bunch of of hypocrites. I don't need Jesus. The second soil for a moment says, yes, But in reality, they're saying yes to what they think he offers. Look, I'll do good for you if you do good for me. That's religion. But these people oftentimes peace out. Why? Because life gets hard. And when life gets hard, they don't understand. Wait, I did all these things for you. Like, why aren't you making life perfect for me? And they leave. And the third soil says, yes, I want Jesus, just not as much as my wealth. If I'm honest, just not as much as my wealth. Take away my comfort. I'm out, threaten to take away my hidden addictions or that relationship or that status in this company. You take away the thing that I've come to trust most for my happiness. I'm out, Jesus. 
You see, in all three circumstances, the depth problem is a need problem, which is why Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 when he says, I will speak in parables so that they may be ever seeing and ever hearing, but never understanding or perceiving, because they don't really want me to begin with. But the fourth soil says, look, I don't know everything that there is to know about you, Jesus, but I do know that the things of this world, they're not filling me up like I thought that they would. And I'm willing to put my life, my hope in something else. I think it's you, which is why I'm sitting here at your feet asking for answers. I'm not going anywhere. Now, let me clarify. Because if we're honest, many of us today would say, I do. I do. I, I put too much hope for my fulfillment and stuff or, or in my sexuality or in my comfortability or in my circumstances, in my relationships. Does that mean that I'm not the good soil? And this is where it's so important for us to understand the power of the seed, of Jesus's love. When Shelby and I celebrated our 15-year anniversary, we signed up for the four-day classic Inca Trail um, to hike to Machu Picchu. As a matter of fact, here is a picture of us descending into uh, Machu Picchu on the last day. But one of the most fascinating things that we learned about Machu Picchu was how they built it. They built it by the power of the seed. You see, the Incas had to leave. They had to flee Machu Picchu. They never finished it because the, the Spanish were on their way. And so they fled for their life in the middle of construction. And one of the cool things about that is you can see how they were constructing it. And so our tour guide took us up to this giant, huge piece of granite, massive. And he points out these holes that have been drilled out in a perfect line, the top of this piece of granite. But they hadn't split it yet. And then he takes us to another giant piece of granite. And this one had the exact same holes, except for this one was actually split in half. And he stopped. He said, how do you guys think they did this? How did they split it? No one could figure it out. To which he said, what they would do is they'd take super dry wood and they would shove it into these holes that they had drilled out. And they would slowly, drop after drop, add water to the top of this dry wood and the dry wood would slowly expand and all at once, boom, crack this huge piece of granite. Sometimes bigger than a building. I'm telling you, this was massive stone that they were able to crack. And what he said was the Incas learned this technique from nature because when a seed planted in good soil and sprang up through a hole in granite, you would think that the granite would win and, and, and choke out the tree. But the truth is the tree would always crack the granite. The tree, the seed had the power, kind of like this picture here. You see, when it comes to the power of the seed, the power of Jesus's love, there are some things that all of us need to understand. The, the first and foremost thing that we have to understand about the power of the seed, the reason why Jesus uses a seed for the analogy, for the way in which his love is renovating our lives, our world is because it takes time to grow. It takes time. He, he didn't say he would strike you with lightning and instantly you would be changed into perfection. No, he, he likens our change to the slow growth of a tree. For those of us that enjoy gardening, know what it feels like to plant, you know, bulbs in, in the fall and then watch them spring forth from the ground in spring. It's awesome. 
Or take it back even further. Planting, you know, a, a tree from seed. And then over time, years and years and years and years, and all of a sudden for the first time, the sapling is producing its first fruit. We have a peach tree in our backyard. Last year it gave us one peach. This year I think we have 10. And we're so excited, right? But we have to patiently wait to see that growth. But when it comes to us, we oftentimes we beat ourselves up because we're not growing fast enough because we're not experiencing the fruit that we think we should be. We don't understand how we still struggle with the same problems over and over again. The lust, the selfishness, the lying, the anger. Like, why are we still struggling with these things? We should be past this. Something has to be wrong with this. But we fail to acknowledge the power of the seed is not that we're perfect. It's, it's acknowledging that we need Jesus. It's that simple. And that there's growth that is taking place. It might be below the surface. We might not see it at the moment, but it will spring forth full of life and produce a crop, some 30, 60, 100 fold in us, as Jesus promised. I meet with so many guys that struggle with pornography and they hate it about themselves. In which in turn, I look at them, I say, the fact that you loathe this about yourself is evidence that the seed is growing inside of you. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. God's love is growing and it is more power, powerful than your addiction. It is, it is more powerful than the granite in your life. It always wins, always. You need him in the moments when you're fighting and you have success and you say no to the lies that this thing's gonna fulfill you. You need him when you fail to remind you that every sin you fight has already been defeated, been put to death the moment he died on the cross. So get up, don't give up, try again. And guess what happens over time? You'll notice he becomes better. The gospel, the good news of Jesus over time becomes better, better than anything else in this world. It takes time, but the seed always wins. Which leads to my second point for the power of the seed. And I'm stealing it straight from Tim Keller. He says this, the power of the seed comes from its weakness. That in death and burial of one acorn lies, lies the power of a whole forest. And this is why people were surprised with the movement that Jesus was starting because he wasn't there with sword and spear to beat back the, the oppressive empires, right? That they, they thought he was gonna beat back that they were hoping for. He didn't come to dominate, he came to die. Because he knew that his death had more power than domination. That sacrifice has, has way more power than force. You can't force someone to love you, but you can show them how much you love them and pray that in turn, they might love you back. And so Jesus knew the only way to deal with all that's wrong with this world, to deal with all that's wrong with us was to die and to be planted into the ground so that three days later he could spring forth. That we might know his great love for us. In closing, I, I want to tell you how this reality, Jesus' love, has tangibly changed my life and two people that I desperately love. Not some metaphor not some parable, but has tangibly changed my life. When I was 
a young boy, my family fell apart. And that led to me having a hard heart and being very bitter. Praise God, I was connected to a youth group that had amazing youth leaders, like the youth pastor I just told you about, who didn't judge my soil, but kept loving on me, kept pursuing me, kept sharing the good news with me. And it was at a camp that I gave my life to Jesus. I said, all right, I do. I'm in. I, I know just enough to say my anger, my bitterness, it's not working out. And I said, I'm in. And he began a process of renovating everything about me. And I remember becoming the farmer and being excited to share Jesus with other people and working as a, a Jamba Juice manager and sharing Jesus with people and people coming to faith and the excitement and, and the joy of watching that. And then the next thing I know, I'm leaving Jamba Juice and I'm here at Cornerstone. And once again, I get to you know, plant seeds and water them in the hearts of students. It's so awesome. And I meet this kid named David Wolf. And David Wolf begins to struggle when he's in high school. And he begins to become, you know, addicted to things like alcohol and drugs. And I watch him in depression. I watch him push away. And he ends up getting a DUI and it kind of hits rock bottom. And he comes to me and says, Gabe, what do I need to do? And I said this, I said, you need Jesus. You need to be all in. That's what you got to do. And I know there's so much to that answer. Like that's a really simple answer, but it's the truth. You know the stories, you know the Bible. It's time for you to choose Jesus. And then I said something like, you need to dump your girlfriend who you're doing drugs with and move into my basement, something like that. And he does. And I'll never forget standing at his wedding, officiating his wedding and looking at him as a strong, righteous oak for his spouse. Because he chose the seed. He chose Jesus. And around the same time, as he's springing forth full of life, my son, my oldest son, Jackson, he starts to struggle. And he struggles with depression. He's pushing us away. I'm watching him um, indulge in the things of this world. And me and my wife, we pray for this over and over again, would he just choose Jesus? And I'll never forget being at a high school camp and watching him do just that. And all of a sudden, we start to see new life. And he starts to engage again. And he moves into the basement with David. And he has people like David and other leaders that never give up on him. They don't judge the soil. They just keep loving them. And now he's bursting full of life. I tell you these stories this morning because this is the realest thing that you could give your life to. Trusting Jesus' love for you and saying, okay, I'm in. I don't even know what that means completely. But I know the things of this world not working out. They're not offering me the life that I thought that they would. My prayer for you this morning, if you're in a place, you're still getting to know him. Would you be willing to say, okay, I'm going to give this a try. 
Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person um, that's listening right now. I pray, Father, for those people that are stuck, that are feeling hopeless, feeling like they're living in darkness, feeling like they have nothing to give their life to. I know the enemy's good. He wants to steal your love that's sown in them. Pray against that in the name of Jesus' name. Pray that they'd be willing to, even now as I'm praying, say the words, I need you, Jesus. I can't do life without you. Father, I thank you for the righteous oaks in my life, the righteous oaks here at Cornerstone, the people that have been trusting you for many, many, many years, for the fruit that they provide for this community, for the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness that we experience from them. I thank you for the reality that your seed plants in our heart and it takes time that we don't have to beat ourselves up because we, we struggle. All of humanity will struggle. It's the reality of our nature. But I also praise you for the fact that you don't leave us. You help us to grow and to change. You bring forth life out of dark places. And I thank you for the greatest example of that, how you experienced the greatest darkness in your death and suffering, that we might trust your love and experience real, real freedom and real joy, that our lives would no longer be a barren and dry land, but it would be a garden bursting full of good things that only come from trusting in you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.